0: It's time for Girls in Golf Podcast with your favorite hosts, Lex and Sarah. Ladies, when you're ready.
1: Welcome back to Girls in Golf. It's been a couple of weeks, so we have a couple of interviews for you. Lex and Sarah at our houses, as per usual now. And this week we have, um, like I said, two interviews with Barry Lida, who's an LPGA tour rep for Callaway. And Julie Williams, who is a writer for Golf Week, we had her on a couple of years ago to talk about, or last year, it feels like a couple of years ago, to talk about the Augusta National Women's Amateur. Um, And this week, she's telling us all about amateur golf and why you should tune in, Sarah. I think we have a couple of great guests this week.
2: Yeah, we do. Um, So thanks for joining, everyone. Uh, We're going to start with Barry, just like Lex said. um, And he's going to give us a little bit of overview on what he does with the LPGA Tour um, some fun stories and what's more to come there. So please stay on, on the line, I guess you could say, <laughs> um, as we've got a great interview coming up. Thanks, everyone.
1: Welcome back to Girls in Golf. Today, we are talking all about women's golf, and we're really excited to have Callaway's LPGA Tour rep. He's been with Callaway for over 25 years. Barry Elida join us on the podcast. Barry, hello. Hi. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Great to great to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, we're really happy to have you. We um, have been talking the last couple of weeks about doing a little bit more about talking about the LPGA and women's competitive golf rather than just women in golf. And we thought it would be really good to have you on. Fun fact, you are a, our second male guest ever on this podcast. <laughs> Who was the first? <laughs> Ron Syrak. We had him on a couple weeks ago to talk about...
0: um, He he knows a lot about the LPGA too. I I see Ron a lot.
1: He sure does. Um, So for those who, you know, might not have heard of you before, please tell us, you know, how long you've been with the LPGA and what your job is on tour.
0: Well, my job is to travel to every event that the LPGA has, as many as I can anyway. I don't go to everyone in Asia. And then um, provide the golf equipment from Callaway as far as anything we have, including balls and gloves and software and hats and everything and all the clubs uh, to any uh, first specifically to our staff players who are out there every week. And then secondly, to any players who are not under contract that would like to play some Callaway equipment. And so my job is... uh, it's pretty busy. We've probably got out of the 144 players every week, there's probably a 100 players that are using some type of Callaway or Odyssey equipment that week.
1: And in addition to equipment, you get a lot of bags out there, right?
0: Sure, there's a lot of bags. Well, you know, because there's not a lot of contract sponsorships on the LPGA, um, a lot of players would like to have a bag so they don't want to go buy a bag so they ask me they go can Barry can I get a bag and so we have some requirements that they have to have certain clubs in the bag in order to get a bag but if they if they fulfill those things I'll give them a bag to use and so we have a lot of golf bags out there with Callaway on the on the side.
2: So how many players do you service in any given week would you say?
0: You know it normally runs um, I, I try to keep count nowadays and every day it's. I I speak with about 30 players, so I'm out there three days, so I normally see maybe as as many as 90 players a week that I at least speak to about something, whether or not it be Barry, I'd like to order some wedges, or Barry, I'd I'd like to try a a three-wood or the shaft in my driver, can you regrip my putter, something like that. But it might be as many as 90 players in three days.
2: That's awesome. And how do you build those relationships with those ladies, uh, specifically the women who um, aren't, uh, you know, as much Callaway right now? How do you convince them to go over to Callaway product and start that relationship with them?
0: You know, it, it's a lot of different ways. Um, for the most part, I just try to, re- to develop a relationship with somebody out on the tour at, uh, who is a respected fitter and, uh, and somebody who knows about LPGA golf swings and because of my experience, I can go up to them and talk to them about things. Um, and word of mouth spreads around. I might be talking to a staff player and there might be a player on each side of them listening to what I'm talking to them about. And I might step away from um, Georgia Hall and that player would say, hey, Barry, can you help me with the three wood? Something like that. And It might just start as easy as that. But also Callaway and Odyssey have such a strong brand that because I'm the one out there bearing that logo, they, they come to me. So, they, they, you know, they see the advertising. They see all the stuff that we, that we put out there as far as um, trying to forward our brand, and they ask me about Odyssey Putters, and they ask me about Callaway Drivers. So it's not like, the, um, it's not like if I was anybody else, they wouldn't do it, but Callaway is a, is a big name and is the biggest name out there.
1: Well, you're certainly really well-known out on the range there. What's the difference? You know, you're the only LPGA rep that's out on tour, whereas on a couple of other tours there's multiple guys. Um, how do you balance everything that you have going on?
0: You know, it's kind of become a, 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 a maybe just an, a, a, an experience type thing to know that you just can't spend that much time with one player. When there's five or six people out there on the driving range – working with a bunch of players, you might be able to spend an hour watching Hendrick Stenson hit golf balls and talk to him about what's going on here with his family and all that, where when I'm on the driving range, there are probably two players already have come to me and said, Hey Barry, when you're done with her, can, can you come see me? And so I'm already on a time limit as it is. So I'm working there with a player to try to get as much done as I can, and I don't ever restrict somebody to a time. We work until we get the job done, at least to that player's uh, satisfaction, and then I'll say, okay, is that good enough? And, you know, and of course, club fitting, like anything else, is always a step-by-step process anyway. So I, I always end it by saying, look, this is, this is a process we've made for right now. If you have any problems, come see me tomorrow and we'll do it again. So, and then I go to the next player.
1: What's the club that you most often service? You know, you, in addition to being the tour rep, you're a club fitter. That's a huge part of your job, knowing what they need.
0: Drivers, drivers are by far the number one. That's what's the most requested thing is. And we have, we have almost 70 drivers in play uh, on in every week. And, and if all the players that we had out there, we'd have maybe as many as 80, but you know, they just don't all get in the events at one time. So when you've got 70 people out there, but, and so, you know, because we come out with a new driver line every year, the first several months of the year are spent introducing and trying to show that driver and get many of those drivers in the bag as possible. And that takes most of my time. And then it filters down. Um, most of the time, you know, wedges are the same for a few years, and they just say, Barry, can you get me a new set of wedges, just like the last ones? And the irons have been normally two or three years. At least the apexes and the apex pros that we've had have been, this has been a three-year run for them. So we haven't really had that much change. But because the driver changes every week, it's, it's the most requested item.
2: What about putters? Do, do women usually like to hold on to one putter for a couple of years, or do they change out consistently as well?
0: You know, it's not it's not just a woman thing. It's it's everything. And there are some players who like one putter they've always had, and some players, for the most part, like to change. <laughs> so part of, another part of my job is putting as many as 50 or 60 putters around a bag on the putting green and servicing that also. So that's another part of my day as I'm walking back and forth between the trailer, the driving range, and the putting green, checking on the putting green and seeing who's looking at what, and, you know, they'll pick up a putter and come talk to me and say, hey, Barry, I saw this putter. Can can I try this? Can you cut this down for me? I'd like to take this. So that's another part of it, yes. Odyssey's a very big part, and we're by far the number one putter out there on the LPGA Tour.
1: Having gone back to work last week, um, what was the spirit of the players like? Were they just happy to be there, and did everyone seem to feel safe?
0: I think so. Everybody was excited, excited. Uh, I think there was a little bit of a a, uh, tenseness about what we had to do. I had to wear a mask all the time. The players and the caddies did not have to wear a mask. But I think they were asked when they stepped into the clubhouse to wear a mask. We were restricted to only working with players who asked us to come work with them, not to just stand around the driving range up and, and gather with players like we would normally do. And we were not allowed to go in the clubhouse or we're not allowed to go on the putting green. So I was restricted and and probably for the rest of the year in terms of those things. But the players were really very happy to see us and happy that we were still there (laughs) to, to help them because after five months, a lot of them had been waiting to see somebody to look at something. They're used to it every week.
1: Yeah, I'm, that's a huge change for them. I'm sure, even even for the ones who don't change their equipment all that often, even s- simple little tune-ups, even a regrip, probably is right. something right. that they're missing out on. What yeah. happens now that they're going abroad? Um, how do they get equipment help over there?
0: There's really not much they can do over there. I think that um, I think that the ping truck has been designated a tour trailer over there for the for the women's British Open next year. I'm not sure about the Scottish Open, but I did talk to the ping rep last week and he said that even though their reps are going to necessarily be there, they're going to be servicing all of the players in terms of needs for regripping or club breaks and things like that. They won't be necessarily Pushing ping stuff on any of the other players, but there's one truck. So for emergency purposes, that's the case. but a lot of times, when we go overseas, there are not facilities that do that. And uh, because I do go over there a lot to Europe and Australia and even to Asia, I bring a kit of clubs and a, and a small kit of things to do where I can re-grip and cut off a club and reweight a club with me right there on the driving range. So they kind of rely on that a lot, uh, unfortunately. In traveling overseas, you're going to have a few players that are going to end up without golf clubs because they're going to lose them in the airplanes, and maybe one or two might get broken or something like that. So there will be a few emergency situations. I wouldn't doubt that we get a call or so in the next week or so saying, hey, can you rush a, a club or something over here to me? And luckily with our office in London, we can probably get something there in the U.K. pretty quick.
1: Yeah, that's the hope, huh? So yes. what's, what's your um, schedule like then for the rest of the year, where normally you'd be traveling probably a good two-thirds of the year, right?
0: Right. It's going to be a little bit less than that, obviously, with the, the limited schedule. I think the Asian swing is going to probably dissolve. I, don't, I just don't see them having the Asia tournaments. Um, there will be two or three tournaments out in the West Coast, uh, hopefully two in California and one in, in Portland. So I'll be going out there for those in September, and then there's a couple of tournaments after that that are on the East Coast in Atlantic City and the Philadelphia area, the Women's PGA, and then later on in the year is kind of when most of the tournaments have been pushed back to in November and December, and so there's going to be uh, several tournaments, even with the Women's US Open being yes. two weeks before the Christmas. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a busier fall winter for me than I've ever had. <laughs>
1: Something new for you to look forward to after having 25 years under your
0: belt. I'm looking forward to, I'm looking forward to that, and I'm also looking forward to a November Masters, which is going to mm-hmm. be a different, a different look altogether to Augusta National.
1: One more thing before we let you go. Um, we are talking to Julie Williams today, and she covers a lot of amateur golf. Um, do you? How much interaction have you had with juniors? I know you met Morgan Pressel at a really young age when she turned pro, right?
0: Yeah, I have um you know most of the interaction that I've had with amateurs have been when they have qualified for US Opens. And that's how I met Morgan um almost 23 24 years ago. So she was she was 12 years old and uh uh her grandfather brought her into the trailer at Pine Needles and tiny little girl with you know with a big attitude and she was going to kick some butt out there. <laughs> it's it was it was fun to work with her then, and it's fun to work with her now. Um, but no, we, you know we have a we have a group that obviously that works with the amateur ranks, and uh, and they do a great job. And every once in a while they'll call me. I went down to the University of South Carolina, which is only ninety miles from here, and spent some time down there with Mike Sposa. He worked with the men's team, and I worked with the women's team. I also helped a few years working with the Stanford women's golf team. So amateurs. So we we kind of tried to do that as much as we can, and because. My schedule is going to be a little bit less busy. I might do more of that this year and helping out on the Champions Tour and amateur golf and collegiate golf and things like that. So instead of just sitting around here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we look forward to all that you have in store for your year. Maybe we'll check in with you before the first major and see where some of our players are at equipment-wise.
0: Please do. Please do. We'll have a little better idea what's going on. And the KPMG, I think, is going to be the, no, no the ANA and at the desert. So that's mm-hmm. not going to be too far from Carlsbad. So um, that'll be the next major, and that's going to be like the second week of September or something like that. So yeah, that'd be a good time.
1: Yep. All right. Well, we'll talk to you then, Barry. Thanks for joining us today. Thank
0: you very much. See you later.
1: We are joined so happily today by one of our first repeat guests. Her name is Julie Williams, and she is a writer for Golf Week. Julie, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're really happy to have you um, to talk a little bit about the Women's Am that took place last week. At Woodmont Country Club, right? Country Club in um, Rockville, Maryland. Um, We were really excited to see that a junior with all Callaway clubs won. Her name is Rose Zhang, and she is now number nine in the world amateur rankings at the age of 17. She'll be going to Stanford next year, um, and she won kind of in wild fashion, right? 38 holes and coming off of a wrist injury. That her coach even told her she shouldn't shouldn't compete, but she said, "I'm going to take ten days rest and I'm going to see what happens." And now she's the U.S. Women's Am champion. What do you think about that?
3: I think I was not at all surprised to see her in the final match. I mean, she she is a junior golfer by definition, but but she is an old golf soul and has played, you know, in, in a lot of different things um, at the junior level, at the amateur level, played it, you know, some pro starts. So. Um, she, her experience is, is far and away, you know, it, is what got her there, I think. And I was not surprised to see her last down the stretch. I mean, 38 holes in one day is a lot, especially when you stack it on top of the six days before that. But very experienced player and, and really showed what she
1: had this week. Can you, for those who might not follow um, amateur golf as much as you do, for sure, um, explain the format of the women's Am? tournament
3: yeah so well it starts with qualifying which I think everybody has talked a lot about this year because of the USGA events and and they unfortunately I mean all of their events are based on qualifying I think we always follow the US Open you know and you you get the average Joe who gets in and it's a great story and if you don't follow it past the US Open you might not know that the amateur championships are filled the same way so normally we would have had one day 18 hole qualifiers to fill this Field and, and typically it's 156, I believe. It's cut down to 132 this year for COVID reasons, and they selected them by exemption category. So we brought all those girls um, to Woodmont Country Club. They played two days of stroke play, so they played 18 18, and then they cut it to the top 64 players, and they had a pretty large. Playoff, I think it was about 14 players, 12 or 14. I can't remember exactly the number. And they, they played off just sudden death to fill that bracket, 64 women. And then they played, let's see, one round of match play. So from 64, they cut it to 32. The next day, they came back and played double round, round of 32, 16. The next day, they came back and played a double round, quarters and semis. And then the, the final was scheduled for 36 holes. So it's not like, you know, they, they played an extra 20 holes, right? Um, so, they, so they had a, a double round final schedule. So it's a lot of golf. So you have to be obviously very fit. You have to obviously, you know, have a game that's going to stand up. And, and so fitness comes into that a lot. But it's a very grueling week. And all the amateur championships are like that, you know, men and women for the USGA.
1: Yeah, that's pretty crazy all that they have to go through. And I know some, um, without the qualifiers, you just apply to get in, right? Yeah, and that was kind of crazy
3: this year. Um, They they based a huge chunk of the field on the World Amateur Golf ranking. So so normally if you're um, wanting to play the Women's Amateur and you're ranked in the top 25 in the world, you automatically get in. So they extended that to 75 this year. But they ended up pulling in players, like I think – last players in were like in the 250 to 260 range, which included some some really cool names. I I wrote a story and talked to a a player named Ciara Stout. She plays for the University of Charlotte, um, which is a startup women's golf team. They've only been around for a couple of years, and she and a teammate actually were the first ever Charlotte players to play the women's am this year. She got in off a number, she was number 251, so kind of got an unexpected invitation, but we want to talk about women's growth or the growth of women's golf, I mean, we're starting new programs at schools and now we're seeing them playing in the national championship. So I think that's a huge, huge win for women's golf. When you have a player like Sierra Stout who gets in the national championship.
2: So just for those that don't fully know, why does it, why does the women's end matter in the career of, of golfers? Why is it so important?
3: Well, I, I think this week, kind of accidentally, we saw a really good example of that. So, so when the, you know, Golf Channel was carrying both the Women's Am broadcast and the Marathon Classic, and so when this match kept going and going and going, we saw, which I'm very happy, big props to Golf Channel that they did it this way. They split-screened it, and we got to watch the end of the Women's Am. So we're watching these two kids, right, 17, and, and Gabby Ruffles will be a senior at USC battling out. And then on the other screen, we've got Lydia Ko and Danielle Kang, who are LPGA players, young LPGA players who have between them, they have won three women's am titles. Um, And so, you know, I remember when Lydia Ko showed up in like 2011, I think it was at her first women's am she's from New Zealand. She you know, she talks very cute. And she's got these funny little mannerisms. And, you know, we think Lydia Ko's cute, you know, who is this kid? And now, you know, years later, she's got, what, 15 LPGA titles and almost added another one on Sunday. So it matters because we see the next generation of players, and we see them on TV. And for them, it matters, I think, um, because they learn to play on TV, right? It's, the, it's that and the Augusta National Women's Amateur, and now the NCAAs, too, offer them the most exposure. I just think it's huge that amateur, women's amateur golf has a prominent television slot. And a side, you know, next to a professional sport. I don't know if there's many sports where you can say you're watching a professional league, but you're also watching the top amateurs play on TV too. So I, I just think it's really cool that they get those opportunities and they get the exposure.
1: And speaking of the Augusta National Women's Am, I think, you know, um, people who aren't as familiar with amateur golf, as we keep saying, because, you know, might not get as much exposure, they might not know the difference or how it impacts world amateur golf rankings between the Augusta National Women's Am and the USGA Women's Am Championship. So can you explain that a little bit?
3: So I would, I would call both of those events like a like a tier one event, right? They're they're pulling the very top players. The Augusta National Field is also filled very heavily based on your world ranking. There are some exemptions. For example, Rose Zhang played her way in this week by winning the women's amateur. Um, and in terms of the different formats, I think, you know, the USGA allows – Uh, it's a bigger field, so they're allowing more players in. So the player I just mentioned, for example, Sierra Stout, number 251, you know, had an opportunity to do something big this week. And and another one, you know, Virginia sent uh, a rising junior, her name was Riley Smythe, and and she was co-leader after the first round, stuck around through the, you know, the first three or four rounds of match play. So you get kids who have more opportunity, you know, to maybe – show us what they're capable of, and it's not just based on their ranking. I think when we tune into ANWA, you expect to see the very best players in the world. You probably have heard about them before. I mean, they're both big opportunities. That, I think, is more about where they're playing, maybe more so than than who is, is playing. So, I mean, awesome opportunities in, in women's golf. And I feel like now, you know, they have just as as biggest stage to play on as, as the men do, which I think is important
2: for sure. So what's up next for them? They, on their path to becoming a fully LPGA golfer, what, what do they have in store?
3: So this year it's a little dicey, right? Are we going to play college? Are we not going to play college? And and you could ask me that question. And I could honestly say, I have no idea. I have no idea what's going to happen at at this point. And it's what, August 10th. Um, and, and we'll need to know pretty soon because the, the season will be starting in September if it's going to happen. But, you know, many of these players, they play some amount of college. It's, it's really not that unusual to see the very best women's um, amateur golfers, especially if they go to Q school and they have an opportunity leave early, turn professional. For example, the player who finished runner-up at last year's women's amateur, Albon Valenzuela, she she left Stanford a semester early because she earned her card at Q School. So the best players who finished well this week, um, for for example, the quarterfinals, the eight players left in the quarterfinals, Rose was the only junior. The other seven were in college, uh, you know, at varying stages of college. And so, they'll be looking ahead to Q-School. What's interesting is this year they don't have Q-School because of COVID. So I thought this was a really smart move by the LPGA commissioner, Mike Wan. You know, he's kind of holding status steady, right? So if you didn't feel comfortable playing as the LPGA is restarting, it's not going to hurt you. But, you know, with players not falling out, there's not a lot of room for players like the, you know, the college players we were looking at, someone like a Gabby Ruffles to have a spot to move into the LPGA, right? So there's, there's no Q school coming up this year. So we're going to see them in college, you know, whatever that looks like for the next 18 months. And then th- they'll have to work through the, the Q school process. And, you know, even some of the very top players last year, like I'm thinking of Natalie strain who won all of the postseason awards, swept all of those. She had, had, gotten, had played her, her Q school in the fall. So she's on the Symmetric Tour now. So I think if you're not paying attention to the Symmetric Tour, you should be because that's where a lot of the really, they they take the next step. And I've heard a lot of players say that's where they learn to be an LPGA pro. So those, you know, the developmental tour, you know, that's what it is. But it's still very high quality golf.
1: How do you take all of this information and relate it to your high school golfers?
3: (laughs) You know, it's funny. I'm not even sure they could tell you what I do for a living. I'm not sure they know what I do. Um, you know, other than I, I tell them, so I, I coach a high school team, and what's really important to me is, is the opportunity-wise. I did the, the final round of the Augusta Women's Amateur t- um, a year and a half ago. I did s- send them an email, and I said, look, you need to be watching today. You need to be watching what these girls are doing. You need to know why it matters that they're here watch how they're moving around the course, watch how they're interacting with each other. I think that's important for them to see those girls on TV, on NBC, no less, on a network. And mostly I just talk about the opportunities. I think they need to know how to play and how to talk about the game and how to interact with each other. I want them to know the rules they groan when I pull out the rules quiz, but we do that every year uh, because I, I think it's important that they know how to act on the course. So what what I take from it is there are all these opportunities in golf, whether it's someone like a Rose Zhang, you know, or Maria Fossey and Jennifer Cupcho, you know, they're at the very top. But but there are up opportunities for us too. I mean, I've worked in golf my whole life, and I have played with nearly every boss I've had. And I think that's been important for me. But also, I mean, that's what, what where I met my my best friends was on the college team I played. So, and I like going out and just, you know, being able to play. And I like that at our golf course, there's a female presence. You know, there's there's lots of women out there. There's a ladies league that, you know, we, we typically play ahead of or behind, you know, sometimes in the afternoons during the season. And I love that they see that there are older women out there playing and, you know, hooping and we can hear them three holes
1: away and they can hear us three holes away. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool that your course has such a presence. We actually um, talked talk to one of the presidents of the largest ladies league in the country earlier in the year. And it was so fun to hear how passionate she is about like getting women out on the course. Um, and we've talked a lot about, you know, the age of the amateur golfers. You see a lot of young girls under 21 um, on the, on these tournaments or in these tournaments at the top. What about the amateur golfers that might be a little bit more seasoned and have been playing for a long time? Where is their place in this like league? So are you are you talking about
3: on the on the national amateur scale or on the or in league play? Let's go (laughs) national. Let's go national. Okay. So you know I, I um I love covering, I covered the, um, well, I've been, I've been trying to qualify into a women's mid-am. That's no secret. The USGA hosts a, a tournament for women 25 and over. No luck yet. But, you know, most states do too. So the Florida Golf Association, um, I played in the women's mid-am last year and I love what they did. They cut the price in half if you were between um, 25 and 40 because they were trying to get players to come out. And, and I, I think that lots of states can can take the lead on that and they paired me next to Megan Stasi who's won four women's mid-amateur titles and it was an awesome day because she was just killing me but it was awesome to watch her play um but but I you know there are lots of women who are still competitive at the 25 35 40 age division I think I think Megan just celebrated her 40th birthday not too long ago and and there are I mean, I would put her up against a lot of players. Ellen Port played the women's dam this past week, and she's 58. She made it to match play two years ago. She's a fellow um, girls' high school golf coach from St. Louis and also was a Curtis Cup captain. So, you know, there, there are opportunities for those women, too. You see a lot of them playing in their state golf association championships, which is why I think really the state associations are very important. We have a great women's um, director here in the state of Florida I like to see those going. Um, and, and I, I think just seeing, you know, the, the college kids seeing that they don't have to turn pro the majority of them will, but they don't have to because there are other opportunities.
1: So Leslie, you know, before we let you go, why should people keep an eye on amateur golf with, in addition to all the other golf we have, you know, both uh, men's and ladies, European tour, PGA, LPGA, all this stuff. What is the reason to tune into amateur golf?
3: So to me, and and maybe this is a, a personal thing, but I think people like stories and, and I like to talk about golf. And so when I talk to a player who has won something, we, we talk about the golf and we talk about what's going going on with their swing and how she played and tell me about that 20 foot birdie bomb that you made And that's great. But a huge percentage of the conversation is about how did you get here? And what does this mean to you? And let's talk about, you know, your college opportunities and where do you want to go from here? And what was the big turning point of your career? And sometimes they tell you jokes. And sometimes, you know, they're standing with another player, who they've gotten to know, because, you know, these women travel together, they were three or four tournaments leading up to the Women's Am, the Women's Western, the Women's North and South, the Ladies National Golf Association Amateur, Most of them had gone boom, 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 boom. So they've been playing with each other all month, you know. And so it's that that I want to know about. You know, for example, I referenced the Virginia player, Riley Smythe, you know, a little bit ago. And and so she's co-leading after the first day. And she was one of those players who got in from the 250 zip code, you know, in the women's golf rankings. She was a long shot player. And here she is at the top of the leaderboard. And come to find out her college coach tells me she's had, she had two hip surgeries before she played the women's am. So she came in as a freshman at Virginia and could barely walk and carry her bag to get through a round. And here she is representing Virginia in the national championship. And I think that's really inspiring. I think it shows the different paths that we get here. And you do hear that in professional golf. You definitely hear the stories behind the players, but you I think you you can relate to them better when when they're on the amateur circuit. You know because these are tournaments that we could all play, in. you know, we could all qualify for a USGA championship and you know if you can avoid making the like 10 that I always seem to make during a qualifier and play myself out of it. You know, you could you could theoretically get there. So uh, to me it's just it's it's grassroots golf and it's if you're a golf fan it's just vastly interesting to me. And you can get there too. You can go and watch an amateur tournament. There's a really awesome series in South Florida that I go to every winter. They call it the Orange Blossom Circuit. And like these are tournaments that have been around since like the 40s and 50s. And so I go every year and there's just people coming out from their backyards watching them. And and these are the tournaments that like, you know, Brooke Henderson was playing in. And Jay Marie Green, um, Charlie Hull, I remember meeting her there. So just get to know the players at this level and then become a fan and keep watching them. And then you know some of their story. That's what's interesting to me.
1: Yeah, I think I think it's really exciting. You know, um, this time has been a very interesting uh, few months, but golf has really seemed to come out of it. Pretty strong, and hopefully, you know, people will start to look into things more, including amateur golf. Um, for those who maybe don't follow you already, can you tell them where they can find your stories and uh, follow you on social?
3: Yes. So I write for Golf Week. Um, all of our amateur and college coverage you can find on our on our menu bar. So if you want to see what's going on in amateur golf, you just click the amateur tab. You can you can see who our big winners have been and who our good stories have been, and you can find me on Twitter at Golf Week Jewels. So I try to kind of keep an eye on, here's what you should be watching this week, or here's the player you should you should know about this week. So give me a follow.
1: Awesome. Yeah, definitely go follow Julie. And, um, you know, until then, we'll see you next time on Girls in Golf. That sounds
3: great. Thanks for having me. I love it.
1: Thanks, Julie.